This is the Meiji at 150 podcast. I'm Tristan Gruno. On this episode, I'm talking with Dr. Alice Tsang, Chair of the Department of History of Art and Architecture and Associate Professor of Japanese Art and Architecture at Boston University. Dr. Tsang is the author of Modern Kyoto, Building for Ceremony and Commemoration, 1868 to 1940, forthcoming from the University of Hawaii Press in 2018. Dr. Tsang, thank you so much for talking with me today. It's my pleasure. You're the first person I've had on the podcast who specializes in architecture and architectural history. And in your publications, you've written about the architecture of imperial museums and now more recently on the urban design of Kyoto. But I was hoping maybe we could start by talking broadly about what's happening with architecture and how does architecture change during the Meiji period? Uh, sure. Uh, well, that's a very big question, as you know. But I think with architecture, it starts changing basically by the time Commodore Perry arrives and trade relations open, diplomatic and trade relations open with the United States and various European nations. And the immediate changes came about for practical reasons. Now that there are foreign merchants and diplomats uh, in Japan, immediately these people had to be housed and they wanted to be housed in comfortable ways and somewhat familiar uh, looking, feeling places. So I would say the first changes that had to occur were right away around the uh, late 19, I'm sorry, 1850s, when uh, these foreigners had to be accommodated somehow because of their, their new presence. So I would say the first changes did not immediately impact Japanese, but it's really meant for the foreigners who arrived. And then once we hit 1868, Meiji Restoration, the uh, new government, that's when we start to see institutional architecture needing to change because it's obviously a, a brand new way of governing that required different types of buildings that did not exist quite the same way before. And so especially with Tokyo, with the central government, you needed a lot of um, ministry buildings and, and, and all sorts of structures to, to house bureaucrats that did not exist before. And so I would say that's the, the second type of architecture that had to, to you know, appear that was fairly new, these bureaucratic sort of office-like structures. And so things don't really impact regular people in terms of residential, I would say, until more like turn of the century. And that is kind of logical because, you know, typical people, there wasn't that kind of urgency for them, you know, on their own to, you know, make that sort of extraordinary radical change in terms of personal habits quite yet, because as you know, homes could be quite costly. And if there's no real reason to build something new or spend that kind of money, there was no real need to make that radical change on that kind of private personal level. You mentioned the Meiji state has to erect these buildings to house new institutions, but the form that they choose for these buildings is often Western. Well, I think uh, this obviously has everything to do with this uh, new interaction with Europeans, Americans who were introducing sort of very new, sta different standards and, and new ways of doing things. And 
you know, part of this change, as we all know, with the Meiji Restoration was this so-called modernization that had to occur for Japan to be as seen as political equals and eventually um, cultural equals to these Western powers. So part of the change in architecture is not simply pragmatic, where you needed buildings to put people in there to work, but it's also very much about uh, assuming the look of the modern nation. So the standards of that time being heavily European, Japanese felt that that was uh, really the most rational way to go about building or designing the new institutional structure so that they look equivalent to the similar types of buildings that one would encounter, let's say, in Washington, D.C., or in London, or in Paris, basically all the the major capitals around the world. And the story we often hear is that the whole goal of proving Japan's equality and proving Japan could stand on a par with all of these Western countries was to revise the unequal treaties. Is that what was behind it, or, or is there other political motivations going on at the same time? Well, there are some scientific reasons behind it, too. Um, one of the earliest architects who helped the Japanese government, the Meiji government, create these new buildings, they were not indigenous Japanese, because if the goal was to create buildings that look similar to what was overseas, there was no one equipped at that time in Japan to design or build in that way. So what had to happen for architecture and engineering, very much like the various other fields at that time, was needing to bring in foreign experts called oyatoi, starting mostly with engineering, you know, the truly very practical things. And then architecture would fall under engineering. So with the designing of buildings, the one major, major figure who stayed on in Japan for a long time and had a huge impact was the English architect Josiah Condor. So with that, the kind of that technical and expert knowledge had to come from overseas. But eventually, very quickly, he mentored a generation of um, native Japanese designers who were able to take over and do very similar designs in both historical European styles, as well as kind of newer uh, European styles that were being developed right at that time. And speaking of Condor, one one of his most famous buildings, of course, is the Dokumeikan or, or Deer Cry Pavilion, yeah. which is really seen as a symbol of Meiji or let's say high Meiji Westernization and all right. of the dance parties mm-hmm. that happen within. Right. But architecturally, it's this very unique Indo-Saracenic revival building. And we can think of during the Meiji period, there's all sorts of different styles that we see in some of the buildings. So, you know, the first imperial hotels is kind of Second Empire. Yeah. The Akasaka Palace is this mm-hmm. kind of a Baroque revival. And then, of course, Tatsuno comes along with his own kind of Queen Anne revival. Yeah. How important were these individual styles? I mean, was there a politics of design in choosing the styles or was any sort of Western design okay? That's a great question. And I believe uh, for Condor and his immediate students, they knew what they were doing. I mean, Condor himself coming from England, this was a time in Europe where there were great debates about national styles. Every nation wanted to claim a unique style or, or claim uh, a certain styles as 
uniquely theirs. And so, you know, there was a lot of politics behind, you know, do you choose Gothic? Do you choose neoclassical? And what, who owns those styles? And what does it mean when you, you take on these styles? So Condor was very well aware of these debates. And so he chose carefully doesn't always mean what he picked was legible to the people of that time. For example, the Lokumeikan and also the museum in Ueno that he also designed at that time. Most people didn't quite understand what was happening, both Japanese and European visitors, because in a way he overthought what needed to be done. He was well aware that he was in Japan. He was designing for the Japanese nation. There was some sort of national identity that needed to be expressed. Yet at the same time, he also worried about not designing in a very sturdy and solid way. And so at that time, in his mind, designing in a very solid way, monumental solid way, had to be designing with brick or stone. And so that was part of the problem in his mind. You know, how do you express a national identity that was uniquely Japanese, but without using any actual Japanese material or styles, which would be mostly wood-based. So, and that's why we end up with fairly strange-looking buildings at Ueno at Nokumeikan, where he wanted to show some sort of Eastern character, according to his own definition, what was Eastern, and ended up picking what he called the the pseudo-Saracenic style to um, represent a so-called Easternness that was distinct from the European styles, such as, you know, the, the classical or the gothic. So that was part of the issue where in a way, he thought too much about the different styles and what their connotations were, to the point that it became illegible (laughs) to many people at that time. As for his students with Tatsuno and uh, Katayama Tokuma, a little bit of that was also uh, with them, uh, their personal preference on top of the specific types of buildings that they were designing. So with Tatsuno, he tended to deal with institutional buildings that were somewhat more pragmatic, like the Tokyo train station. With that, it made sense that a much more industrial feeling uh, material like exposed red brick was used versus something like Katayama's Akasaka Rikyu, uh, Akasaka Detached Palace, where Katayama was looking at uh, comparable imperial palaces uh, in Western Europe and, you know, the the most monumental uh, material to use at that time would be something more like, you know, granite and marble rather than the more industrial looking uh, red brick. So there there was a lot of thought put behind the specific materials and styles that these architects used. They were actually quite aware of what each material and style meant. And to the, to the point that at times they, they thought too much about what to do and what to use. And the final product didn't always make a whole lot of sense to non-specialists of that time. One thing I always found somewhat ironic about early Meiji period architecture, it's the foreign architects who are coming over to Japan and designing things that we would say look more Japanese. And it's the Japanese architects, as you mentioned, who are trained by people like Condor, 
who end up designing the quote-unquote Western-looking buildings. I mean, in other examples, we, we have uh, in the 1880s, the German architects Indo and Buchmann come over, right. Franz Balzer comes over, and they all end up designing these, these very stereotypically Asian-looking structures. So what's going on? Why is it that these foreign architects are designing things that look more Japanese, and it's the Japanese architects who are designing things that look more quote-unquote Western? Right. Well, Meiji, yes, Meiji is a, a interesting time because the the buildings that we we feel like we're most familiar with are the ones that seem very Western, and namely, once again, the projects by Tatsuno and Katayama and and, and Sone, which uh, you know the main students of uh, Condor. But at the same time, there there were some buildings, big uh, projects in in the later Meiji period, which were in Japanese style, and we can talk about that later. But but it is, I think, this was a time of a lot of kind of second guessing others and, and trying to trying to convey a lot through stylistic choice. And the fact that foreigners are are, are going to Japan and and in a way trying to assert Japaneseness for the Japanese is one of I think the most ironic things that. <laughs> at the time in that as you know with Enda and Bokman the Japanese didn't want a so-called you know oriental style to be used for the new diet building very much because the constitution was uh, something so modern that that the government was quite proud of and they were not interested in being stereotyped as these backward people who have uh, you know exotic looking buildings they were very much interested in having a diet building that looked like the major you know institutional structures uh, in uh, European capitals so I also wanted to Think about, you know, what Frank Lloyd Wright designed when he got to Japan with his Imperial Hotel. That, too, didn't look like anything very typical, even though in his mind it was, uh, he didn't think it was very Japanese per se, but it certainly was very exotic for any location, I would think. So <laughs> so there, there was a lot of, uh, I think, foreigners trying to impose a certain Japanese-ness on Japan, whether out of good intentions or I'm not sure, you know, what other types of intentions. But I think Condor, as far as I can tell, based on the research I've done on him, I think he was well-meaning. He, he did really think that he was somehow empowering uh, Japanese with his choice of the pseudo-Saracenic. But once again, it was just kind of lost in translation, so to speak, uh, what he ended up designing. Along those lines, my, my favorite example is, is Tokyo Station, which I've worked on on quite a lot. And so you have Franz Balzer, who comes in to design the original station along with the railway, and he does this entirely oriental-looking building. Okay. And the government, of course, doesn't want that. So then they, yeah. they hire Tatsuno instead, who comes okay. up with this very Western, although right. idiosyncratic design of Tokyo yeah. Station. Yeah, I mean, the Tatsuno design is not... Uh, it's its own unique design in that, you know, it is in this very eye-catching all red brick and, you know, it it's in this style that is not quite exactly like all the major train stations around the world at that time. It's just in a way him looking, reminiscing uh, about the good time he had in London when, you know, the Queen Anne style was at its height. So 
in a way, it's kind of a, a very unique style that he chose for this project, knowing that it was a very major project for him. That was the time when he stopped being the professor and dean at the Tokyo Imperial University to kind of start a private practice. So it was a very unique time for him. And he's almost bringing back some of those Saracenic elements from Josiah Condor. And he, on, there's these turrets on the corners mm-hmm. that have the kind of onion shape yeah. on the top. I never thought of it that way. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> We were talking about Endon Bookman and this plans for the Imperial Diet building and also their capital city plans that were eventually scrapped entirely and not for a small part because of this conservative reaction in the 1880s and 1890s. And you mentioned before as well that towards the end of the Meiji period, we start to see the construction of more Japanese style buildings. So is there a relationship between these two things? Is that turn towards traditional style architecture influenced or impacted by this resurgence in nationalism in the mid-Meiji period? Um, Well, I hesitate to kind of do a direct, you know, cause and effect, but I feel like it also had to do with the fact that by then, they were a couple decades into the Meiji period, there was more awareness of, you know, the cultural politics of the time. And with architects, now we have... A, a new generation, a rising generation of um, Japanese trained, academy trained Japanese architects. So, you know, their approach to designing for the nation had to be somewhat different from what uh, foreigners like Condor or Enda Buckman had in mind uh, when they were trying to design for Japan. So, you know, with that kind of generational shift, to me, that is a little bit more meaningful than simply just, you know, overall across the board, um, there was a more kind of conservative movement, sort of pro-nativist ways of doing things at that time. And also, I think at that time, Japan had gone overseas more and more in terms of, um, at least for my own type of research for the various international expositions. And just kind of seeing how Japan is uh, was being received overseas had a lot to do with how this uh, new generation of Japanese architects were thinking about how they would design for the nation. It's always very interesting to me that when the Japanese commissions for the international expositions decided on what to design for you know, while they're out in, let's say, Vienna or Philadelphia, Chicago or Paris, it was always a given that they had to uh, design in a so-called traditional style, that it would be not even a consideration for them to design in Yoshiki or Western style. So that, you know, the kind of the very positive uh, reception that Japanese goods and buildings had overseas I feel had to have some sort of direct impact on the way that this, this generational uh, generation of Japanese architects thought about how they would want to uh, represent the nation. So I feel that has a lot to do with this sort of turn of things 
by the time we get to the 1880s and 90s, where there was more interest in looking at historical architecture and somehow maybe incorporate some of that into the new designs that they were making. Can you expand on the international expositions? What what are the expositions and, and what are the things that Japan is designing there and presenting to the rest of the world? Right. So I think uh, most people know that the, the late 19th century and going into the early 20th century, there were a lot of international expositions held at major European capitals. The very first one being in London in 1851. But by the time the Meiji government started to participate, and that would be uh, actually in Vienna in 1873. And right away, the understanding was if Japan was going to present itself through its goods and its architecture, um, what was necessary was to um, bring objects and things that was unique to Japan, because these events were not so much about kind of getting to know other people around the world. The real reason was these were industrial expositions. You were out there to open up markets for trade. And so the more interesting and unique your goods are, the more likely that you will actually find uh, new uh, trading partners. And so it was very important that Japan kind of put its best foot forward because the uh, kind of the economic vitality of the nation uh, depended on a good representation at all these uh, various events. And so in terms of architecture, Japan took the time and money to uh, usually create its own national pavilion. And that means creating a, a actual freestanding structure to represent the nation. And usually within that freestanding structure, you would use the building as a showroom for the various goods that are available for sale. And so with this national pavilion design, um, they started right away when they went to Vienna there was never any doubt that they would uh, only do uh, Japanese-style buildings. So in Vienna, they created a very tiny kind of Shinto shrine plus a garden around it. When they got to uh, Philadelphia, they created a, what they called a dwelling and a bazaar. Also, you know, buildings completely made out of wood. They went to the trouble of actually pre-cutting all the material ahead of time in Japan and then shipping them over to the cities where the, the expositions were held. So Japan was one of the few countries that spent a lot of money to create these national pavilions, especially for shipping over the, the building materials, as well as the actual carpenters to uh, assemble the buildings uh, on site. And so kind of that awareness that doing that would create an impression of authenticity for the visitors, that was very important. And, and apparently uh, it worked very well because American and European visitors at that time didn't know a whole lot about Japan. And when they saw these carpenters putting together, assembling all these pavilions and the various auxiliary structures as well, there's usually a garden that surrounds it. There's usually uh, some sort of little bazaar or uh, a tea shop. 
that uh, these structures were actually very popular with overseas visitors. So that made a big impact on the central government and I think made an impact on the Japanese architects who were aware of kind of the power that this type of architecture had on foreigners and their perception of Japan. But it was also a a kind of a delicate line to tread because, you know, if you over-exoticize yourself too much by showing only the kind of charming and and unique aspects of Japan, there was also that danger that visitors would uh, continue to think of Japan as simply this kind of weird, curious other place that's not quite equal to Uh, the United States or to France or England. So it was a little bit of a dance that they had to do. You know, the architecture looked traditional, but then the representatives that were sent over who were actually the the bureaucrats, they would make sure that they dressed in proper Western style clothing so that they would appear as very civilized people. So a lot was happening at that time to make sure that there were no kind of misperceptions of what Japan was all about. And for those visitors to the pavilions who were so intrigued by Japanese designs and Japanese curios, as they were called, I could see why they would be so frustrated then or so disappointed when they got to Japan and saw all these Western buildings around Tokyo. Yeah. And there's even accounts where uh, there was one visitor in particular, I, I don't recall her name, but she's like, oh, you know, you went to Ginza, you know, the Ginza brick town, this beacon of Western architecture and modernity in, in the middle of Tokyo. And she says, oh, it's, it's ugly. Right. You know, it's terrible that right when Japan was modernizing, the, the worst designs of building right. <laughs> were popular in the West. And so, you know, nowhere else in the world can you see ugly Western buildings than you can in Tokyo. Yeah, it's funny. I think that's the typical foreigner's reaction when they visited uh, Tokyo at that time, where because of these expositions, they they really thought the whole of Japan would be completely charming and exotic. <laughs> and so it was just such a bad surprise when they get to Yokohama and then make their way by train to Tokyo and they get out in Ginza and then they see this terrible brick town (laughs) uh, uh, that a foreign expert taught them to uh, design and build. And and so in that sense, yeah, it it was a bad surprise for the foreigner. But, you know, I I think we, we need to actually look at the other side of the story, whether Japanese who actually used those buildings at that time felt the same way and i haven't read as many mm-hmm. accounts but i think that it was half half not everyone loved those built brick buildings but not everyone hated them so <laughs> i think the reaction was more nuanced than the typical foreigners reaction to the western style buildings speaking of looking at the other side if we get out of Tokyo a bit and, and look at what's going on in, in the rest of Japan. Right. You've worked recently on Kyoto at this mm-hmm. time. So how does this whole story look different when we relocate from Tokyo to Kyoto? Um, well, that's a great question. And that's a question that I, I had started asking myself when I was writing about the Imperial Museum in Kyoto, because that is, you know, one of the most famous Meiji period structures in Kyoto, especially for looking so un-Kyoto-like, uh, for being uh, this kind of monumental red brick building. 
I think it's, it surprises a lot of people when I say modern Kyoto actually was quite a competitor to uh, Tokyo in that it was also trying to modernize at a pretty fast pace. And so there were many institutions that were created in Japan at the same time, if not earlier than in Tokyo. And that's something that people of Kyoto are still very proud about, that Kyoto had the first public school. It held the first uh, Hakurankai or exposition, that uh, it had its first, you know, public art school. And, you know, there are many things that they like to claim as they had the first of something, especially... The Biwa Canal was a big engineering. Oh, yeah, that's the biggest project, the Lake Biwa Canal, where it kind of brought not just uh, more water, but also electricity to the whole entire city. So Kyoto actually was very much on the same fast path as Tokyo. It just at this point in time, because we still like to really think about Kyoto as a tourist destination where it's uh, you know filled with all these historical and religious places where that's the face of Kyoto that's usually advertised a lot. But in the Meiji period, um, Kyoto actually was you know, modernizing quite fast, just like Tokyo uh, even had the first electrified streetcar system before Tokyo. But the difference with Kyoto is it indeed has all these, uh, you know, this accumulation of historical monuments and also the all-important imperial palace right in the center of the city. So those places don't go away, obviously, because they were still considered quite important. By this time, important to the whole entire nation for kind of the, the cultural heritage. So whatever development happened in the modern period kind of worked around these various sites, which it was not hard because Kyoto, when it was originally founded as Heian, was a very regularized gridded city. So in a way, that grid really saved Kyoto in that in the modern period, there was a lot of kind of going back to that original grid and laying out actually the streetcar system, the bus system based on that original grid, um, just kind of the axial orientation, kind of having that main central boulevard connecting the main train station, what's now Kyoto Station, and going from there up north all the way directly to the Imperial Palace. So things like that, uh, interestingly, they didn't have to make huge changes to the city because it originally was conceived as this very rational, monumental city. And it worked out quite nicely for Kyoto, actually. While Tokyo couldn't quite do that because it wasn't planned or, you know, originally envisioned in that same way because it was a castle town. So that kind of serpentine layout of streets was was the norm. And so when Tokyo tried to become monumental with these kind of long straight boulevards, that couldn't be done the same way that it was easily done for Kyoto. Meiji at 150 podcast is hosted by Tristan Gruno at the University of British Columbia in Vancouver, Canada. This podcast would not be possible without the cooperation of the UBC Center for Japanese Research and the technical assistance of the UBC Faculty of Arts, ISIT. Find out more about the Meiji at 150 project, including the Meiji at 150 lecture series, digital teaching resource, and workshop series by visiting our website. Meiji at 150.arts.ubc.ca. Thank you for listening.